0: Hello and welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Peter Lawrenson, the chair of the Department of Economics at the University of San Francisco. This episode is sponsored by the University of San Francisco's master's degree in applied economics, which focuses on the digital economy and USF's Center on Business Studies and Innovation. My guests today are Andrea Rabette and Jeff Carpenter, both professors of economics at Middlebury College, who specialize in game theory and behavioral economics. And To that end, they've just published a new textbook, Game Theory and Behavior with MIT Press, which we'll be talking about today. Andrew and Jeff, welcome.
1: Thanks so much for having us.
0: So first, why don't we just give the the basics. Um, Could you introduce what game theory is for listeners listeners who are unfamiliar with it?
1: Uh, Sure. So game theory is the study of strategic interaction. Uh, So you can think of it as multi-person decision theory. It is used to analyze situations in which two or more people interact uh, independently in pursuit of their own interests. And then the outcome depends on what they each do. So uh, to figure out the best thing for you to do in these situations, you need to think about what the other people are going to do. Uh, You have to put yourself in their shoes and reason through the situation from their perspective, uh, even as they're making the same calculations about you. Uh, So to take probably... One of the simplest, most commonplace examples, imagine you are walking down the street and somebody else is walking towards you. Should you move to the right, move to the left, or just stay the course and hope that they're going to yield to you? Uh, So your optimal choice here depends on what you anticipate they will do, which in turn depends on what they anticipate you doing, and so on. Uh, So these types of interactions are, are everywhere in everyday life, and as economists, some of the game theoretic interactions we think about most uh, include things like bargaining and negotiations, auctions, market design, interactions among firms or between workers and management, um, public goods problems and common pool resource problems, social choice, voter turnout, and so on.
0: So, uh, So what's, you know, given that we all, you know, live through and participate in these kinds of interactions all the time. Uh, What is it about game theory that, um, you know, what does it add? Like, don't we just automatically kind of make these decisions?
2: Uh, I guess what it adds is, I, I mean, it's interesting if you teach both standard micro theory, like intermediate micro and game theory, you start to see the differences more clearly, right? So in micro theory, it's often the case that it's almost like, you know, you're interacting with a bunch of, atoms that randomly bump into you sometimes but there's no meaningful interactions and you know that's that maybe describes part of our life hopefully not a large bit of your life but more of it is you're doing these sort of walking at each other seeing who's going to swerve and uh in that sense i would almost think that game theory is more applicable to the standard student undergrad than maybe the micro theory
0: yeah i think that's that's right you know we do, right, Are we We have, well, I guess we participate in markets every day, but tend to, you know, it's, nice thing about game theory is it tells you how to, how to, it sort of gives you advice, whereas market theory is often a lot about how no one should, especially in the, the basic micro, should, about how no one should interfere with the market and just let it go and everything's going to be perfect.
2: Right. I mean, in some sense, it's okay to walk into the grocery store and not think too hard about where that price for bananas comes from, but, you know... When it's time to actually think hard about something, it's you're actually bidding in an auction in a market or something like that to clear a market. And, you know, that takes more cognition.
0: So um so your book you've titled it Game Theory and Behavior. So so why don't you tell us more about, you know, why you know there are a lot of game theory textbooks out there, you know, it's been an active area of research and, and teaching for for quite a while now, so it's not uh it's not novel. Why do you feel like you needed a new textbook and what's kind of the emphasis of your textbook?
1: Yeah, so, um, well, Jeff and I have both taught game theory at Middlebury for a number of years. Um, It's part of our core major classes here. So we typically offer the course every semester and the two of us alternate who does it. Um, So we've spent a lot of time thinking about and refining our courses, but neither of us was ever really able to find a book that fit the class well. Um, And so, I mean, this in two senses one in terms of the the level and the tone of the course that we found worked for our students Um, but also as you alluded to um, in terms of incorporating behavioral evidence and models Um, so um, on the first point i think we both tried really hard to strike the right balance in our classes between on the one hand precision and rigor so that students really master the technical tools and um, are able to apply the theory to various situations And then on the other hand, making the material really intuitive and accessible um, to reach students with a range of different math backgrounds and also to allow them to see a lot of these commonplace applications like Jeff was mentioning. So, I mean, I always tell my students at the start of the semester that my goal is by the end of the class, uh, they're going to be cursed like I am. So they're watching a movie or they're talking to their friends and all they're thinking about is how do I model the situation as a game? Um, And then the other aspect we thought was missing from existing game theory books is the behavioral evidence. Um, So standard game theory is built on rational choice theory. And so to make predictions, we essentially look at what outcomes are possible if nobody makes any mistakes. So either informing their beliefs uh, about what others are going to do or in calculating their own optimal strategy conditional on what they believe others are doing. But we both, as behavioral economists, we personally believe that if the goal is to understand strategic behavior and be able to predict the outcomes of these strategic interactions, then we need to not just logically think about how rational actors would interact with other rational actors. We need to think about how real people actually behave in these situations. Um, So what we do in our classes and then in this book is we have students... Uh, play the games in class and discuss how they approach their decisions. Then after we talk about what the standard predictions are, we present experimental evidence of how subjects who are financially incentivized behave in laboratory experiments. Uh, And then to the extent that the behavior diverges from the standard predictions, we don't just say, "Wow, you know, game theory is useless. Aren't you a chump for taking this class or, or buying this book? Uh, Instead, the experiments typically reveal some robust behavioral regularities, and then we can modify the theory to incorporate these behavioral patterns within the existing framework of game theory. Uh, So sometimes this takes the form of updating people's utility or payoff function to take into account various motives like altruism, spite, reciprocity, Uh, Sometimes it means allowing people to make mistakes in implementing their optimal strategy, needing time to learn, or uh, perhaps underestimating how strategic their partner is. Uh, So for these reasons, uh, neither of us had found a book that we thought was particularly well matched to the courses that we were teaching. So Jeff came to me and suggested that we rewrite one ourselves. Jeff, do you have anything to add to that? I
0: don't, <laughs> I don't know what I could
2: possibly say beyond that. So yeah, that's 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 more more or less it in not quite a nutshell.
0: <laughs> okay, that's great. Um so uh this myth may kind of overlap with what you were just talking about, but I was um curious, you know, both of you are teaching um at a liberal arts college and how, how did you find that um, that experience or, or that environment shaped your approach to the text? Do you think that led you to, to treat it differently than, um, you know, someone might be at, at uh, at a more, uh, you know, large, uh, like PhD granting university? No, What do you think? I mean, to some extent, you know, you know, we're blessed
2: with an abundance of super, uh, bright, earnest students and that forces you as an instructor, uh, to think harder about the topics yourself because they're going to ask you hard questions. And invariably, you know, you would go into a game theory class and play the ultimatum game or the prisoner's dilemma, and they wouldn't do what theory would predict. And like, well, as Andrea says, like, well, what's the point of this? It doesn't predict. And so it gets you to think too, like, uh, in terms of how the profession itself, game theory as a a discipline has adapted over the course of the years and in, 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 reaction to all these experiments that have been run in the last thirty or forty years. And, you know, the students kind of anticipate that and they they love the positive, call it the positive aspects of behavioral game theory instead of the normative, okay, yes, you've got rational choice and they should do this. And that's all we really care about. Do we really care what they actually do? Well, you know, the students really do. And so mm-hmm. they they in some sense I would say I credit them as pushing us harder on on, you know, developing the book, and it comes from our experiences in that classroom, and I'm not sure that that's, you know, uh, confined to Middlebury or liberal arts schools or anything like that, but of course what is conducive is a smaller class where the students get to speak.
1: Yeah, uh, I will say I think that the level of student engagement means that it's really clear to us immediately if our explanations aren't resonating with them in the class, Uh, so both topically, or as, as Jeff was mentioning, um, when it comes to thinking about how they actually behave in these interactions, but also just in terms of, you know, how clearly we're presenting the material. Um, so we got a lot of feedback on what examples or analogies or approaches don't work well in our teaching. And I think that really helped us writing the book. Um, so, you know, I, I think back to the very first time I taught game theory back in fall of 2012, um, And I had too many students in my office hours to fit in the office, so I wound up booking a classroom the night before the problem sets were due, and the entire class would show up and work through the problems uh, by themselves or in small groups, and I would go around and answer questions. Um, And that experience, I think, was really formative for me because it taught me how to sort of ask them a series of leading questions so that they would ultimately arrive at the answers to the problems themselves. And that is very much the approach I use in class now and that we use in the book. Um, So we always try to start with intuitive examples and then slowly add layers of complexity that require these these small logical leaps that the students make on their own. Um, And then the hope is that they don't even necessarily realize how rigorous or challenging uh, much of the, the material actually is. So I feel like that approach has been... Uh, informed and honed by having these smaller interactions over the years.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. I think yeah, at a, at, a, at a more research-intensive institution, probably the the incentives for faculty to, like you said, to take take a night and get all the students together in a in a classroom um, and and hear their confusions uh, directly is is, is somewhat uh, lessened because there's often much larger classes, and you know the TA will handle that and that kind of thing.
1: Well,
2: and you know, maybe one advantage of the book that we hadn't even considered now that you've mentioned this is that, you know, we've struggled through that. So if you teach it in R1 or something like that, you know, the book is written because we've encountered all those pitfalls and we figured out ways around them. So maybe they get more out of the book and they don't have to come and see you.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, you know, we, we would encourage the we encourage all the faculty to, to spend some time with their students anyway. But um yeah, that's, that's great. So um, uh, you include with the textbook, um, or, or you've developed uh, a set of games that go with the textbook. So why don't you tell us uh, more about that?
1: Uh, sure. So um, we begin each of our chapters with a motivating game, uh, which sets up the topic, and then we provide the materials for the instructors to conduct that game in their class, uh, as well as some other games that are relevant to some of the chapters. Um, So for each of the games, we have worksheets that the instructor can hand out, and they guide the students through how to play the game in the class um, in pairs or in small groups. Um, And then we also have O-Tree codes for more tech-savvy instructors to run the game uh, online in their classroom um, with the students logging in just through a web browser. we found that starting off the topic with a classroom game allows the students to to learn experientially and, and helps to build intuition before we kind of get into the te- technical aspect. Um, also, we found it helps really get the discussion going. You know, oftentimes students aren't willing to say what they think an equilibrium is, but they're willing to have some thoughts about um, how they played a game or um maybe some not so nice thoughts about their, how their partner played the game. (laughs) Uh, And it also helps to set up the behavioral results.
0: And so, um, dudes are great at rationalizing what they've done. (laughs) Right. It's, it's interesting how some of them will stick with stuff that, that just isn't really, you know, isn't in their interest. It's like, you know, this is what your payoffs are. Then what you did is not helping you. They're like, but yeah, but I'm still going to do this.
2: Well, I mean, Um, I often say that I say, sometimes I say, imagine you're, playing this game with some random person or to get the sense of you know social preferences and you know are you playing this game with mother teresa or more importantly are you playing this game with your sibling mm-hmm. and that's where the spite and the reciprocity usually comes out
0: right right no i definitely yeah found students really the spite and reciprocity parts uh i think is they they definitely have an instinct for that and and helping them understand how that can be Folded back into the game theory kind of framework um is and it's not just that like yeah to to understand how that works is uh um is challenging but very useful um so so your chapter has a ton of topics um i mean your your book has a ton of chapters and topics uh like 28 chapters so how much of this do you usually get through in a a semester
2: (laughs) (laughs) well so i mean the problem is is we we're in the middle of what we have, uh, what Middlebury calls winter term. And so our semesters are actually 12 weeks long. And so it's tough, it's really tough. I mean, I think what at least I try to do, I'm not always successful at it is say, look, here's the core of the book that we need to get through to make sure that we're covering the bases. And then let's pick and choose what you guys wanna talk about. And, you know, there's enough topics there, enough topics that other introductory books don't cover that uh, we never have a hard time filling the space, but you know you often can't. You just frankly can't get to everything.
1: Yeah. So we, our hope going in was to have each chapter correspond to one class period of about seventy-five minutes, ninety minutes of material. Um, and so I think we thought about the first twelve chapters as being kind of the nuts and bolts that probably every course would want to cover. So that would be about six weeks of material, and then uh, the instructor and the class could pick and choose among the remaining chapters. So those were written to be standalone topics um, that be- could be covered based on the interests of the class.
0: Okay. Um. So so why don't you tell us about some of the um, extra topics that you cover that um, don't appear in, in a standard intro game theory textbook? Just like give us an introduction to like what are, what are sure, they about
1: um, for instance, we have a chapter on cooperative game theory, which is often not commonly covered in standard undergrad textbooks. So I won't say that none of these are covered in any of them, um, but uh, kind of in conjunction, uh, most of these topics aren't covered. Uh, so, matching market design, we have an entire section on social choice and voting games, and then we have an entire section on uh, what we call behavioral extensions. So that includes, um, you know, sort of best response dynamics, evolutionary game theory, quantal response equilibrium, level K reasoning, and then uh, psychological game theory. So I think those are all uh, important behavioral topics that usually would not appear in a standard game theory textbook.
0: Right. Right. For sure. Um, okay. Well, actually, from that from that point. Um, I, you met i think on your website or you mentioned that your next textbook project is about going to be about specifically about behavioral economics um is that all one also a joint project with both of you
1: uh no that's that's <laughs> just me i'm the only oh, has a okay. masochistic interest in continually writing textbooks so um.
0: so uh so why did you um so you didn't burn out from writing the one textbook. You're going to continue on. Why did you? Um, I wouldn't what's say. Your, <laughs> <laughs> Well, we'll see when the textbook actually finally gets finished, right? Um, um,
1: uh,
0: but uh, what are your what are your goals with the behavioral economics textbook?
1: Yeah. So, um, well, I personally like the balance of writing textbooks um, as kind of a counterpoint to doing research. So when I get frustrated with my uh, research plans and things aren't working out the way I uh, was hoping, I always feel like I have control over writing a, a textbook chapter. So that's one of the reasons I do it. And I also feel like it informs my research ideas and makes me makes me a better teacher.
2: For sure. Mm-hmm. I mean, just imagine all the stuff you already learned in just writing this textbook on game theory. It's like, oh, that's how that works. <laughs>
1: Jeff, you're supposed to make it seem like we, we knew what we were doing from the beginning.
0: <laughs> right. That's, yeah, that's every, every teacher's uh, most painful <laughs> lesson is that, that you didn't, as soon as you start to teach something, you realize all the parts of it that you didn't really understand.
1: Yeah. Well, it, it also, I think, has, has revealed some holes in the literature, too. Like, well, I'm trying to explain this in this way, and I'd really like to make this leap, but there just isn't the evidence yet for that. And so that's informed some of the projects that Jeff and I have actually undertaken in the last couple of years. Um, But to to get back to your question, um, yes, I'm I'm currently writing a behavioral economics textbook that's uh, pitched at intermediate undergraduates, um, as well as practitioners or other researchers who are looking for an introduction to some of these behavioral topics. Um, And actually, in many ways, this book has a lot in common with the game theory book. Um, So for one, the tone is similar. So the goal is to be conversational and approachable, but also very precise and with an emphasis on formal behavioral models. Um, And the objective is not to give the impression that people are weird and do wacky stuff. So therefore economic theory should be disregarded. Um, So I think behavioral economics often gets a bad rap because it's viewed as just this laundry list of disconnected behavioral biases. Uh, So instead the goal of the book is to focus on behavioral, uh, how behavioral insights are incorporated into standard economic theory and then used to make updated predictions, which can then be in turn tested empirically themselves. Um, And then in this way, the field advances through this iterative process of developing and testing theory to produce more descriptive models of human behavior, um, which hopefully can then eventually go on to actually become the standard theory going forward.
0: Right yeah it's definitely been amazing to see how that's uh, evolved over time from you know the the game theorists being very resistant to anyone with behavioral um ideas um or you know things that sort of cast doubt on the perfection of their their purely mathematical models to now it's it's much more integrated um and uh you know it's kind of an ongoing uh more of an ongoing joint joint effort all right. Well, um, thanks. I think that's uh, this is a good place to wrap up. Uh, so thank you both for, for taking some time and uh, I have adopted this textbook for myself for next semester. So uh, I'm looking forward to digging into it and, uh, and learning about all the things, uh, all the, the branches of game theory that I haven't actually gotten to yet myself.
1: Okay, great. Well, I hope it goes well.
0: Yeah. And thanks for doing this podcast. Yeah, my pleasure.